Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast with your host, Brad Johnson. Brad's the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, the largest independent insurance brokerage company in the U.S. He's also a regular contributor to Investment News, The Wall Street Journal, and other industry publications. Welcome to the Elite Advisor Blueprint, the podcast for world-class financial advisors. I'm Brad Johnson, VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, and it's my goal to distill the best ideas and advice from top thought leaders and apply it to the world of independent financial advising. In today's conversation, I'm speaking with Robert Glazer. Bob is the CEO of Acceleration Partners, a global affiliate agency trusted by some of the world's top brands to manage their partner marketing programs. In addition to serving their clients at the highest level, Acceleration Partners has built a reputation on being known for their incredible company culture as they've been recognized globally with culture awards year after year. In fact, Bob is currently ranked as Glassdoor's top 50 highest rated CEOs for small and medium businesses. And I made sure to link to his company's Glassdoor profile just so you all could check it out. It's in the show notes as I'm not sure these could be any better if Bob hired a writer themselves to actually write them up. And it speaks to the success of much of what we cover in this chat. So besides running a company, Bob is also the author of Elevate, Push Beyond Your Limits and Unlock Success in Yourself and Others. It's a USA Today and Wall Street Journal bestseller. He's also the host of the Elevate podcast the author of a weekly email newsletter called Friday Forward that is read by over 100,000 people in 60 countries each week. So if you're looking to grow as a leader, Bob's proven framework and ideas and the lessons he shares here today, taken from how he's evolved as a CEO, I promise you're going to get a ton out of today. It's a must listen. Here are three of my big takeaways from this episode. Number one, how Bob turned what was a weekly newsletter, the Friday Forward, into a Wall Street Journal best-selling book. Number two, Bob's unique four-part Elevate framework and how you and your team can use it to find spiritual, intellectual, physical, and emotional balance in life. And number three, what Bob did to build an award-winning company culture that defines his business. In fact, we get into unique ideas like the idea of transitioning employees out of your company versus firing them. Okay, before we get to the show, as an aside, it was really a bit surreal re-listening to this episode as it was recorded in February prior to the COVID-19 lockdown. So especially at the end where Bob and I talk about what we'd look back on and find absurd about 2020, little did we know what was coming around the corner. So it was just a great reminder to me that no one can predict what the future holds. So we really need to live in the one place you can impact as much as possible. And that's the present. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Today is a gift, which is why we call it the present. Bill Keene. Okay. Lastly, a gift Bob was kind enough to make available to all you Blueprint listeners. He was kind enough to send me a box of autographed copies of his latest book, Elevate, Push Beyond Your Limits, and Unlock Success in Yourself and Others. If you would like your free copy, here's what to do next. Number one, I just ask that you leave an honest review out on iTunes or another one of your favorite podcasting apps. I know Spotify is making a lot of news lately. So if you're listening out there, whatever you can do out there, follow, like. To make it easy, there's a graphic right at the top of our show notes, bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 81. Or if you're listening on a mobile player, most times just simply scroll down, there will be a link in the show notes. 
Once you've left a review, just drop us an email via brad at bradleyjohnson.com with your iTunes username. Or if you happen to be leaving it on another service, just screenshot it. And the best mailing address, and we'll drop you a copy in the book as a thank you. That simple. Also, quick apology to our international listeners who have been kind enough to leave reviews. One of these days, we'll get a distribution partner somewhere across the pond and make it easy to get you all books too. But for right now, they're just too crazy expensive to ship. So if you want to support Bob, just go grab a copy at your local bookstore or out on Amazon. So that's it. As always, thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Robert Glazer. Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint. I have special guests with me here today, Bob Glazer. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. Well, it's like we've been two ships passing in the yeah. night. Um, <laughs> it was funny uh, how we connected. I think you have a uh, company that you work for. They yeah. kind of, okay, here's Bob. Would you like to have him on the show? And I was like, man, that name sounds super familiar. And so we connected and come to find out we'd both been at Jason Gaynard's Mastermind Talks and just never actually connected out there. So Jason has a very cool lens of how he uh, invites a group of people into there. So you, it was like you were already vetted before I even knew you. So Same thing to me. I was like, "Why?" I know the name of this firm. I've seen it like four people mentioned it to me. I think Todd Herman and just uh, mentioned something. So it's funny. Yeah, it's a small world. Well, well, many of your past podcast guests have have spoken, Joey Coleman, John Rulin. So uh, yeah, it's always cool when, it, when I meet mutual acquaintances where I feel like we're already friends. So with that in mind, I'd love to hear the first thing is I was really preparing for this conversation. Man, you got a lot of things going on. And sound, you're sound a, like my wife. <laughs> you're okay. a CEO of a company named Acceleration Partners that's been basically globally recognized, multiple culture awards over and over and over. And so obviously we're going to get into that today. But then at the same time, besides just being a CEO, you've got a personal brand and platform. We're going to get into your book, Elevate that just came out in 2019. You have an Elevate podcast. You have Friday Forward that's a weekly email. So my first question to you, man, is how do you get all this done? How do you balance it all? What are your priorities if I was to open up your calendar and look at it? I'd I'd love to to hear more. Yeah. So they're all connected, I think, more than would appear on the outside. This lends itself to the spiritual capacity component of Elevate, which we'll talk about. But about five or six years ago, through a pretty intense leadership program, I got really focused on my core values and really understanding those and sort of aligning my life and my business around what I wanted to do. And so, you know, I really do the same things within my business and outside of my business. My, my core purpose is to share ideas that help people and organizations grow. So there is the business of what we do, but for a lot of it for us and for me is how we run the business and some of the cool things we've been able to do to let us win those awards. And I, those aren't things that I want to like keep a trade secret. I want to try to share those personal experiences with other leaders and organizations so that we can have better companies, more engaged you know, workforce. And, and to me, that the sort of effort is around open sourcing some of those ideas. So a lot, a lot of the stuff that we do is Friday Forward has actually become very ingrained as part of our business, even though it has nothing to do with it. Even our leadership training program is actually built around the capacities in the book, which not until I wrote it did I realize that's what we had been doing all along in terms of our, mm-hmm. our training. So it is a little more connected than it might seem on the outset. But the other thing that I've realized is we're in a world now, particularly from a professional service organization, when you think about millennials and Gen Z and buyers, and they're making decisions 
you know, for product companies around, you know, what the company stands for and what they do. And, and we're seeing that in the, in the B2C space. I think that's kind of starting to evolve in the B2B space too, around someone being like, look, we're, we know you're good at X, but, you know, I'm choosing the type of partner or the type of companies that has the sort of values that, that are important to me. So that we've seen a lot of anecdotes around how, you know, a lot of this stuff, you know, reaches actually into our business world and mm-hmm. makes people say, oh, like, that's the type of company or people that we would want to work with. So let's go into the origin story of Friday Forward, because I think that was kind of the first organic way that you started to say, hey, I want to pour more into my yeah. company, my culture. Can you share kind of how that came to be and what that's evolved into today? Yeah, it's kind of crazy looking back. So it's probably five years ago now. I've been saying four years for a couple of years, which means it's probably five years. I went to this leadership program. And one of the things that came out of it in, in terms of a lot of the sort of introspection was about really being intentional, a morning routine. I had been turned on to Hal Elrod's book, you know, The Miracle Morning. The person who ran this really focused on that, you know, in the morning you should kind of get up and and think and read and write and, you know, read something that's positive or motivational. You know, we were given a couple quote books or maybe chicken soup for the soul or something like that. And I was like, it's not really like my sort of motivational, like it was a little too rainbows and unicorn for me, but I had some of these stories and quotes and things that I like. So I actually just decided one week that I would combine these things. So like I would make some of my writing, like I I'd come up with something each week and I'd send it to my team where 30 or 40 people at the time were distributed. It'd be a good way to stay in touch. So I, I'd read a note. I think I called it Friday motivation. I called it a bunch of different things initially, but it wasn't about the business. It was kind of a, a story or a push to do something or kind of a, really about personal and professional development holistically. I sent it for a couple months. I was enjoying writing it, but I didn't think anyone was reading it. And I did start to get notebacks from people saying, hey, you know, I did this and it made a difference for me, or I really enjoy these notes. Thank you for sending them. Or I sent it to my husband and he shared it with his company, or I sent it to my spouse and my mother-in-law loves these. And so I was sort of getting some signals that it was uh, going outside the the company. Uh, A few months later, I was at an EO event and we were talking to uh, some other CEOs about best practices. And I said, you know, I started this note to my team. It's been good for me. People seem to like it. You know, it seems like a good practice. I'll send you guys a copy if you want to see, you know, how it works. And and after the event, I did that. And one of them said, I really like this. And he started his own and he's been doing it, you know, for five years. The other three, like good entrepreneurs said, this is great. We'll just forward this to our teams every Friday, like uh, put us on the list. And so that's when I thought it might have some external value. What I did was, and I was kind of managing a, all this through BCC. There was no way to find the old ones unless people asked me about one. I went through my sent mail. So I just bought like a WordPress website and I set up a directory of the old ones. I decided to call it Friday Forward because it was being forwarded. I sort of renamed it and I set it up as a a newsletter system, but like it just looking like an email, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't want it to look like a newsletter, but I just wanted people to be able to sign up for it. And I I put a sign up link and I dumped about 100 to 200 friends and colleagues on it. And I thought, you know, I, I was expecting this sort of like unsubscribe, what the hell is this kind of deluge back. But I actually just started getting nice notes. A couple of months later, a guy in EO had a column in Inc. and wrote this article. This is the only newsletter I read every week. And suddenly I saw like 2,000 people sign up in a couple of days. And then from there, you know, we added some people that we did with WorkWise. And, but it just started growing. And I'd you know, wake up and look at the 
little thing with pins and there'd be people opening it in 50 countries. And I mm. was getting messages from people, you know, all around the world saying, you know, thank you. Like this is, this hit me at the right place, right time. And so that sort of upped the expectation. So that's how it started. And then I went to write a compilation book of sort of the best of Friday Ford. Cause kind of like musicians, right? You get known, but then, or authors, but you think like, I'm like, no one's seeing these old ones, which were like <laughs> some good way. I only had 200 people on the list when I wrote this one. And, and I went out to a bunch of agents and they said, interesting, but no one buys a compilation book. And then I found one agent who also said the same thing, but he said, look, I really love this writing. You're building a platform. Like what's, what's the story here? Like, I think there's a book behind this. And so I took some time and I started reflecting on our business had really grown dramatically. My life had really started to change in the, in the three, four years since, since I had done this. And also I was, you know, through MMT and other way, around all these high performers and noticing some themes around what made them and other CEOs and business leaders, you know, really good at what they did. And I kind of realized it was all the same. And, and why were these emails having an impact on people I didn't know and these strangers? And, and, and it all actually boiled down to the same answer for me, which was the sort of framework I was using that I was seeing in the high performers that we were using as a training vehicle for the team at our, our company and reaching these people was, was all the same thing. It was these four elements of capacity and they were consistent. And actually I've since taxonomized all the Friday Fords in that into those buckets mm -hmm. saying like, look, these stories all touch one of these areas, which was a kind of all part of the system. So it, it took a while, but it all kind of came together for me in, in sort of the framework of, of Elevate. And we even like, when we always talked about how we built up people holistically, I didn't have the term capacity building at the time, but we now use that. And when we're talking about training, we even use the nomenclatures of kind of spiritual, intellectual, physical, and emotional. Yeah. So let's, let's hit that because I did love the simplicity. And when you say elevate, you're talking about the book. So for those joining the video, I'm holding it up here. So the four, again, were spiritual number one, intellectual yeah. number two, physical number three, emotional number four. And I love the analogy, the little simple diagram. Oh, yeah. yeah. Can you just share that? Uh, just kind of how the balance works and how the momentum can be created based on that balance? Yeah. So these are interconnected, but they also go in a logical order. Like I think if you're trying to make these changes, I actually think you want to sort out the spiritual piece before you dive into the other piece. And there are very poignant reasons for that. But if you think about a ball that's inflated and then someone pointed out to me, it needs to be gas, not air, because you're talking about mass, right? And all of these things lose a little bit of, uh, you know, air over time. If you're constantly working all of them and they, and they, and they grow sort of in unison, you know, your ball is going to have a lot of mass and roll fast. If you got one that's way down and one that's way up, it's going to be really lopsided and they're really interconnected, right? I can give you entire narrative around what happens when, you know, one of these things falls off a cliff and you're, you know, doing really well in the other ones. You really need, we're all weakest in one at, at, at different times. Like I have really ironically, like in the rollout of this book, like damaged my physical capacity in doing that for two months. So we go through cycles, but I actually think awareness of where we're kind of off or need the improvement is helpful because when you get them all working in a system, you're really humming. And so would it be helpful for me to just define them all quickly? Yeah. Let's, let's hit that though, real quick, because I've, yeah, I think the idea of this wheel is not new. You know, Jim Rohn had it, Darren Hardy used it in his book, The Compound Effect. But what I loved about your book, I've always looked at it where it's like a ranking system and it's like this wheel with spokes and, you know, where if your yeah. shortfalls, but I've never actually heard it in any other books where it's 
something in motion. And if you think about that same wheel with spokes, if one spoke was longer and yeah. the other one was shorter, it's going to be this wobbly, super like inefficient wheel. And to your analogy, like a beach ball with four different chambers in it, we've got to make sure that thing's equally inflated. And when it is, there's balance there. And then you've got true momentum. Yeah. And, and, and you see someone who's locked in on all four and they are usually, you know, humming. I mean, even when you talk about even even spiritual, I, I think I said in the book, like if you're at a party, you're an event and you ask a hundred people, you know, what are your core values or core purpose? You know, 90 Four will look at you with a blank stare. You know, four more may like come up with a couple of words, and the other two will just answer. Like my purpose is to whatever, whatever. And and I can promise you that person is doing something pretty extraordinary because they're locked in and are very aware about what they're doing. I, I I've never met someone who could just rattle off their purpose who wasn't super dialed in to kind of what it is that they were trying to to achieve with their lives. So so let's circle back to yours again because I, I think you kind of mentioned it earlier, but if yeah. you hey, this is mine. How would you clearly state that? Yeah. So, and for me, it's the opposite of a company. I think I, I said this too in the book, like a company probably has a clear purpose of why it started. The founder, you know, you start this because you you just, you know, so frustrated with the education and the financial service industry or someone, dad has a disease and they start an organization, right? So they're more clear about the, the purpose than the values. I think it's easier for individuals to say, here are all my core values. And then there's kind of a logical integrating layer that sits above that, that often comes from pain. Like I, in talking to people about this over and over and over again, like it usually resonates with something that was deeply impersonal or impactful for them, whether they've made the connection or not. I've sat with a lot of people as they made the connection and you can just see the emotional reaction to it. So yeah. So for me, that hierarching thing is to share ideas that help people and companies grow, right? That's what excites me. That's what gets out of bed. That's why I wrote the book. That's why I'm here. When I speak to a company, I say, that's why I'm here. Like you guys, you know, you're paying me, which is great. But like, if you leave here and and you guys grow yourselves in the business because of this, like that's intuitively what's excited to me. And that's why when we figure out something in our organization that we think is a really better way to operate a business, like I intuitively want to share that with others. Mm -hmm. I thought it was an interesting... I'd never thought about it this way, but it made complete sense out of the book. You said it's easier for a company to have a vision to your point that was some problem or some issue we were trying to solve. And then you back into kind of the core values oftentimes later, where as an individual, it's a lot easier to come up with core values, things you stand for. But then it's kind of like, you've got to be in the game a while before you figure out, hey, this is kind of my vision. Yeah. You feel that that's pretty accurate in just about every scenario that you've run into? Yeah. And because it's a process. So, right. Spiritual capacity, it's not, not religious for me. It's what are your core values and what do you want most? And I think the most important thing any of us can do individually or in an organization or to become leaders is to be able to articulate our core values. I would argue that we know them. We have a bad feeling when they're violated. If you actually made a list, you know, when you actually figure them out and you lay that sort of piece of paper back on your report cards and all the things you did, like it fits perfectly. Like, Worked, didn't work, bad outcome, you know, good outcome. But we don't have the ability to articulate them. And without the ability to articulate them, we can't use them and make decisions as accurately. And so it requires some work to dig into that. But when you have the ability to articulate your core values, your decision-making just reaches an entirely new level of, um, particularly around what I'd say is the big three of like, who's my partner? Where do I live? Where do I work? Like these are decisions that if you don't make a line to core values, probably aren't going to 
on an end well. And if you look back on bad choices in those areas, that you can probably see that. So, but I think it is easier for people to see that and then think about, well, what if I added all these things, what is the purpose or what what is if I'm clear on the purpose, maybe because I know where it came from, or what would a purpose be that served all of these values, right? Because if I want to feel really good, I should pick an overarching you know, purpose that says that if it fulfills all those values, then I'm really going to enjoy my achievement rather than you know, be very sex- successful at something that I don't care about and it doesn't matter. Yeah. I think, well, I know you know Cameron Harold. I've yeah. had Cameron Harold on the show. It's kind of the whole idea of the vivid vision. You look yeah. out, you know, three years, whatever that we've time. Done, we've done that in our company with Cam. It's been incredible. Yeah. Yeah. He's come out and spoke at our events and some of our most successful offices. That's been a big key of how do you motivate a team to run in one direction? Well, you got to paint the picture first. And a lot of, I think a lot of, especially in our space, and I'd be curious to, to know if you felt the same way. I mean, a lot of financial advisors, they start, they're pretty much a one-man show with maybe a couple people helping them out. So very small business and pretty much doing everything like a startup company. Yeah. Then once they have success and now the team starts to grow, it's like, oh, shoot, I've got to not be a salesperson anymore. I'm a CEO now. And now I have to actually motivate and inspire people to go this direction. Was that the same journey that you had as an individual moving from a very small team to a bigger team and you had to kind of figure out how to do that? Or did you naturally always paint a vision? No, I was scared to death to let go. But once you start doing it, you get addicted to it. So I, it was really that point when, when I figured out my personal core values that we, we had grown a lot, but we were hitting some walls. Mm-hmm. And I, I think when people go down the path of leadership, I think what they do is they collect a bunch of best practices from other people. Like I saw Brad do this and Emily do that and Lisa do that. And I put these things on and I, and, and because it's very logical, right? Like, oh, I respect this person. And it wasn't really until I went through that process of realizing like that really what only works in the long run is an authentic, like values driven leadership, which means intuitively that what you value is not for everyone. But if you can put it out there and say, here's our vision, here's what we value, like, and get the right people on that journey that's where it all comes together. So we actually cut our core values as a business from six to three, kind of went to everyone and said, here's our vision. Here's what we're going. Like, if this excites you, like it's going to be a fun couple of years. If it doesn't, this is probably like a good time to exit left, like no hard feelings, but like, this is what we want to do. And from that point, I just sort of became unapologetic in my leadership. This is who I am. This is what we want to do. We have a lot of great comments on feedback sites and like glass door and stuff. But if, but one of the things you can see people trying to like scare off the wrong type of person, like, and say, look, don't come here. If, if you want X, Y, and Z, that's not, that's not what, what we're about. I think building a great culture is just being aligned between what you say, think and do. And as a business leader, it's really exhausting, you know, not to do that. Look, if you want a family oriented culture and you want to say we treat everyone like family, then you know, except that you're probably not going to be high growth and high performance because you're, what you're saying is like, it's really about the relationship. It's not about performance. And like, that's fine. If, if that's what you believe in, you want to run that organization, but don't recruit in like a top person, you know, whatever, because they're going to be really frustrated when you don't deal with underperformers, you know, in that sort of environment. So if you flew your flag in the right way, you wouldn't get that person. I would say to people, if you're a hyper competitive person, like kind of a jerk, and that's the culture you want, there's plenty of people like that. Like, so it's to be like, look, here's how it works here. And this is the bonuses that some of the Silicon Valley companies did. Here's how it works here. Like 90% of the bonuses go to the top 10 producers and our events are about competition and it's about outcomes. And like, 
that's the game we're playing because that's who I am. The real problem is everyone's stuck in between, between taking these words, putting them on the wall, not believing it, not doing that. Like it's kind of exhausting and, and really not productive to say something that you don't mean. Like don't say we believe in harmony and all this if you don't actually believe that. You're better off. I said it's like universities, right? There are tons of great schools out there, but the person who likes you know, Dartmouth is probably not going to like Alabama, is probably not going to like UC, but they have different value propositions that appeal to different people. So how, how many years ago was that kind of, hey, we've got this vision, we, we narrowed the core principles down to... That was, was sort of six years ago. And then three years ago, we did that first vivid vision and sort of, it's probably four to five between that, laying out the vivid vision and saying, here's the company we're going to build on the Camp Herald thing, and, and then just marching down that path. And how scary was that for you? Like, because I mean, terrifying for you for you to say it right now and say, "Hey, if you're not aligned, exit stage left." It's one thing to say it; it's another thing to actually walk that. Well, I also felt like you feel like a little bit of a liar. Like, hey, we're gonna five million revenue company. We're gonna build a twenty million dollar company in three and a half years. We're gonna be in five countries. We're gonna write a book called Performance Partnership, and we're gonna win five best places to work awards. Like, that was all my vision. Yeah, I was told I was crazy, and I felt a little bit you know, crazy. But what was interesting was I always do the onboarding and I would read that to people and walk them through it when they started. And then as we started doing that in the last six months, I'd say like, look guys, like, just so you know, like none of this was actually true. When we, like now it looks obvious because we're in five countries and all. So I'm back at the cycle again. Now we have a new one and we're three months into the new one. So I'm now kind of sharing the, the next view with people, but yeah, it's intimidating to put something out there like that. But to me, the great culture comes from a differentiated point of view. Like you should not shy away from having a differentiated point of view. Like we believe in fee only. We believe like you're not going to make everyone happy, but you're trying to attract both the talent and the clients who resonate with that. You know, every small business I found, particularly services businesses trying to get to 10 million in revenue that really focus on too many things, like the ones that narrow down and just own one thing grow so much faster. They get to that 10 million level, which is really like where you start having real true enterprise value and you're not doing everything. And then they can think about like they become world-class at, at one core thing. And then they can think about the other things that they may want to do. But when they're chasing way too many strategies early on, it almost inevitably slows down their growth. Awesome stuff. All right, let's transition. So we were joking a little bit before we went live here. Yeah. And so your company plays in the affiliate marketing space, yeah. which is not, you know, I wouldn't say people hear affiliate marketing and get warm and fuzzies and like, yeah. oh, that's a noble cause, right? Well, a great analogy there is financial services. A lot, I mean, I think a lot of the, you know, the average consumer out there, he'll, here's financial advisor and they think of like, well, what are they going to try to sell me? How are they going to try to take advantage of me? And there's a lot of distrust out there. So how did you take an industry that didn't have a great image and create an incredible company with an amazing culture inside of that? And does any of that apply to financial services where financial advisors could benefit from those same principles? Yeah, it's funny. When you, when you make that analogy, and find, you know, I, just, I picture the 80-year-old Dean Witter in the jacket, you know, selling like exactly the sort of archetype, you know, that, that earns the bad reputation. That's true for our industry. So to me, the core of the affiliate model, which is paying for performance, has always been like the smartest thing that you could do in marketing. If I told you you could pay your marketing after you got your sales, you would say, 
well, of course I would want to do that. So the concept of sort of aligning incentives around paying for performance has always been intriguing to me. There was a lot of people- And let me hit pause there real quick, just because I'm assuming people know what affiliate marketing is. So could you give a- overview of what is affiliate marketing. So yeah, at its simplest form, affiliate marketing is is almost using technology to kind of agree to a business development deal where there's a publisher or a content site or someone who is able to has a user interested in something, they drive them through to a store or a service. That entire lifespan is tracked and then they are paid when that person buys the product, signs up for the service or otherwise. So it is a it is sort of like a tracked business development. So really simple example, Amazon has probably the biggest affiliate program in the world. It's probably 20% of their sales. You have me on this podcast, you do the show notes, you say Bob has these two books, you can be an Amazon affiliate, you know, create affiliate links to those two books. And if they, because you've created the demand for my books, and if people click through from Amazon and buy those books, you will get 5% of the revenue from each of those books. So that's that's affiliate marketing in a nutshell. What we do is we help set up these programs for really large brands with hundreds or thousands of partners, all sort of working on a contingency basis where they take some risk about promoting that product or service and they get paid on the upside. Now, the bad name, you know, the Dean Witter, whatever equivalent, comes from a lot of email marketers and people in that industry, you know, selling lists, promoting nutraceutical stuff at 60% commission and really just trying to sell people stuff they don't need so that they can get paid a commission. You know, we, we work with like a large brands like a Target or otherwise who are paying, you know, 5%. I mean, not the type of money that creates these bad incentives, but it's kind of like when people throw affiliate marketing together, it's kind of like saying marketing's not good. Well, I mean, there or online marketing's like there are tactics that are good and there are tactics that are bad. So we we kind of came out years ago as an agency and said, look, we think there's a really valuable channel. We do. We think there are all these cowboy people out there. We don't see a real white glove agency helping large brands tap into the power of a huge you know, performance uh, channel and performance partnership. So we always joke that we kind of came out in this white glove service in a market where people didn't have hands and trying to convince people that a premium offering when they're used to kind of a lot of these fly-by-night shops and people kind of offering to help them out of their mom and dad's basement, it was different approach. But you know, we made a bet, we stayed with that, and now these large brands are all coming in the marketplace looking for you know a professional agency to help them with a strategy and execution on these programs. So we're very honest about the dark sides of the industry and the things that you shouldn't do. And you know, I I think that's one of the things for anyone is to sort of not to get into the, the pre-politic discussion we we're having, but you have to reach over that line. You have to say, I can say as someone who's sort of a, tries to be out there representing the industry, that there are parts of the industry that I don't agree with and don't like what they're doing. And I, you know, I, I can't universally approve of what everyone's doing. And I, and I think that you know, builds respect. I think people, like I say, they love the self-deprecating lawyer. You know, and they probably like the self-deprecating financial advisor who says, yeah, our industry's got some bad reputations for a reason. And, and here are the things that people done, have done. My financial advisor, who's incredible, so her entire motivation for being a financial advisor was that she was a finance major in college and was sort of a CFO and worked with probably one of these archetype financial advisors who totally ripped her off. And she became so, you know, and sold these very expensive, underperforming products and was so frustrated that someone who had a finance degree sort of got hoodwinked. Talk about passion and pain. It became her purpose to totally flip the model and go out there and work with small business owners and educate them and run a totally different type of financial uh, planning firm. And she's just doing extraordinarily well. Okay. So I want to I go into that because yeah. one thing I do know 
that the audience loves is the psychology of a successful business owner and why they chose their financial advisor. Before we go too deep there, though, if I really summarize what you just said there, is if there's bad images or preconceived notions from your potential clients, transparency is the answer and truth and saying, hey, there are different aspects of our industry that I don't agree with, but here's what I stand for. And back to the core values, here's what we're about and why is that if I was going to apply this lesson to financial advisors, is it transparency and here's what I stand for and why, or is there more to it than that? Yeah, I think it's some humility too, right? So because we'll it's probably a very similar analogy. We'll get on the phone with people who've had a really bad experience with like a Gen 1 affiliate program. And we'll be like, and we'll just acknowledge that. Be like, yeah, I can see why you'd be upset with that because there was conflicts of interest. There were these guys had no value. There was attribution issues. And, and, and so rather than I'm sort of honoring and agreeing with, you know, and I was like, we agree. That's why we do what we do because we thought all that stuff was BS too. And we, and if you look at our writing and our positioning, whatever, for years, we were actually against, you know, all of that stuff. So it, 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 yeah, I'm I, at the conferences are all joke. I'm like, you know, I'll say, look, I'm, I'll, let me, I'll tell you all the dirty secrets of the industry, like, mm-hmm. because I, this is why we built our, our business around that. But it's also then on the flip side of not being all things to all people. I mean, she is our advisor. She has a very specific focus that resonates with a, a certain type of person. And again, not trying to be everything to everyone, but the flywheel of referrals, you know, within that segment really starts coming when you get known for being good at that. And you understand the specific services that you, you know, your clients want in that industry that, that you may not have even realized. All right. So let's go deep there. Yeah. Um, how, so a lot of advisors that yeah. are what I would call growth mindset advisors, high performance firms, which we work with a number of, you've got these different marketing channels. Yeah. So if you said, here is the marketing channel that I fell into to get introduced to my current advisor. What was that? That's uh, referrals. Mm-hmm. Um, I, our business is all referrals. And, and, and actually, so I, uh, originally I got introduced to her. This is, this is a good lesson too for, for, <laughs> for owners. I got introduced to her, uh, because I had a, a friend in an EO forum who was a wealth manager and, and we were looking to make a change. And, you know, there's a, a conflict thing where that's just not a good idea. And I said to her, if you, if I couldn't hire you, you know, who would you send me to? Um, they sent me to this person who was at actually another firm. And, um, this is a, gr- this is a very good lesson for all businesses and financial advisors. And, and she was spectacular. She was just on top of everything, you know, and, and became, I think the, the sort of, you know, rainmaker at that firm where the, the owner was able to, to be passive. I had, I didn't know the owner. I didn't really know the other team. Like I really knew her, which was great. And then, you know, I think she was told she'd make partner and then that didn't, you know, happen. And again, if you have someone who's, who's delivering 90% of your business and, and, and you're not involved, like take care of them. Don't be greedy about, about that stuff. I mean, I set that up. And, and so she said, look, I'm going out on my own. You know, the, the, the firm reached out to me in these classic cases of, so do you want to go with me and follow me to the new firm I'm starting, which is a risk. I, I like they were introducing themselves to me. They had not gotten on a call in years. They had not come to a meeting for years. It was like dealing with strangers, right? They didn't know me. They didn't know my business. They didn't know my wife versus someone who had like completely invested in us for two years and as an entrepreneur, I wanted to support her. So that was like a really easy decision. So to me, there are a lot of lessons in that in, in terms of like, you know, I, I would never want, you know, so, you know, if you have someone that great, 
you should take the 20% and mm-hmm. give them the 80%, you know, not the other way around because they're not going to, they're not going to pull the whole, you know, sled forever. Yeah. There's a, there's a saying I have in our coaching is a players are always free. Yeah. It, it's it, a players. They're doing 10 X what, what the standard person you get off the street would do. So you want to, you, you don't want to lose those people. And that's a, it's a good lesson right there is you went with the A player that started their own firm. I think all her business has been referrals. Yeah. So, so let's go into now the context of if I was going to go after the niche market of a small business owner, a CEO type of personality like yourself, that's yeah. obviously doing very well for yourself financially, but also juggling a lot. What yeah. are the niche services that that firm does that really keep you there, keep you happy and serve you at a high level? Yeah. So I think they've really settled in on the sort of personal family office kind of model, understanding that my stuff is is very connected. So she will spend time with my wife, you know, working on the sort of budget. And she will also work with people on our business, looking at our projections, our taxes. She even just did a whole financial literacy call for all of our employees because one of the number one things that people said was they want to understand more about 401k and savings. And so she did that. So just It is this holistic thing where for me, it really is that sort of like personal family office where she knows everything is ingrained in everything. If something happened to me or otherwise, like it is, I have that one call quarterback, you know, who my wife trusts implicitly, my people, my business know and otherwise, because for me, for a business owner, it is all super intertwined. And so that was something that was really, you know, important to me. It's actually not as much about, look, some of the investment stuff, you know, with all the things these days, all the auto, auto ETFs and all that stuff, like the investment piece is a commodity in some, in some areas, right? You can build a model portfolio. It, to me, the value added is all of that other stuff and understanding that entire 360 people picture and also having those relationships with my wife and my finance team and everyone and being integrated. So, right. I have people reach out to me all the time, you know, pitching their services. I, we have this big platform and come over to this. And I'm like, I'm like, you're kind of completely missing what I need and what this person, you know, does. I don't need esoteric investment projects. Like, <laughs> I mean, uh, pro- products, you know, what I really value is that I have a, I have a, a sort of integrated, you know, quarterback partner who understands all of these pieces, both to look at it and help me. And there was something last week, actually, even in the budgeting where, where she said, you know, the homeowners just looks really expensive to me to what I've knowing about your health. Like, let's go to the insurance agent and, and ask them to run this. Like, that's just not something that I think a lot of people do. Hmm. Well, it sounds like your advisor has an incredible relationship with you and a high level of trust. What does the rhythm of communication look like? Is it emails? Is it text check-ins? Is it quarterly meetings, annual meetings? What's that? It's quarterly in person. I actually pushed her to do Zoom and stuff. I was like, look, we can do Zoom. Like, you don't have to, you don't have to come down here. So she had been actually doing the kind of going over some of the budget stuff with my wife each month. We moved that to to quarterly. So it's really more of a quarterly or otherwise. But again, another just value-added service. We had talked about our kids had some funds to invest from their bar bar mitzvahs. She found some fun curriculum and and actually sort of did a session with them on, on understanding the basics and investing and helped us work with them to pick four or five stocks in their accounts and like actually focused on like helping us educate them. Um, so that's another just, again, a non-standard service. But this is the type of stuff that, you know, when you're talking about like, you know, competition, I mean, this is the type of stuff where like, you, you know, someone comes to me and offers to do it for a thousand dollars less. Like I'm not interested. That's not interested. Right. <laughs> this is not, if you're in a commodity world, 
if you make yourself a commodity service and someone offers it for $500 less, you're at risk. Mm-hmm. Well, it, what it sounds like to me, you go back to your Friday forward, you're obviously a personal development junkie, as are a lot of uber successful people yeah. in all industries. It sounds like what also is resonating, she's actually become that for you. She's helping develop your team at work and she's pouring into them, your children, and to where it's almost like she's doing personal development from the finance side for your business and your family, which is a really cool aspect to that relationship. Yeah. And for a business owner where their stuff is intertwined, you know, feeling also like from a risk standpoint, you know, that I have someone who really understands all of the stuff, all the pieces. If something, you know, happens to me, I mean, that's critically important. And that's where the trust factor really comes into play. Mm-hmm. So when you say family office, and then we'll we'll move on to yeah. another topic. But when you say family office, I make the assumption that's obviously your financial planning, which you hit budget. Yeah. That's integrating tax planning. I would assume that's personal and from a business standpoint. Which um, is the same thing. Planning. Right? Yeah. And it, does she have CPAs, attorneys on the team? Is she is she referring you to outside attorneys and CPAs? That she I have out? a lot of people on my team, but she acted the sort of quarterback of that. Or if, if there's someone like recently, she introduced me to someone with a specialty that we thought that I should look be looking at as we were thinking out something a couple years ahead. You know, she's like, this is the best person I know in this area. So while she didn't do the trust and estate stuff, she actually met with and got to know the trust estate, but she knows what it is. She knows where it is, right? And, yeah. and just has that, that whole uh, picture to, to sort of make, you know, recommendations as things change in our lives and, and scenario. That's awesome. Yeah. I think QB is a great analogy. It's like, she's sourcing the rest of the team and vetting for you. It's kind of like, kind of like COO, but look, here's an interesting thing, right? That doesn't probably scale across a hundred accounts. Like she's made a decision about the type of business that she wants to run. And she might change that and find other people like her or figure out what she can do back office. But, you know, that lends itself to this way. You can't be everything to everyone, right? So it's probably right now does not, wouldn't want to be a 200 account firm because that's not the type of model that, that, that she wants to deliver. So there are always sacrifices to a certain you know, type of model. But for me, it's, it's sort of start with the end in mind. What, what is it that you want to be? Are you trying to build a firm that you can sell? You know, or do you want to build a certain type of firm that you want to run forever? Each of those has totally different paths that you might want to go down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's get into, I'm going to be doing a massive disservice if we don't dive deep yeah. in culture here. So <laughs> I'm just going to brag on you for a bit here and tell me if I leave anything out. So your company, Acceleration Partners, Glass Doors, Employees Choice Award, two years in a row, Adage, Best Place to Work, Entrepreneurs, Top Company Culture, two years in a row, Inc. Magazine's Best Place to Work, Great Place to Work, and Fortune's Best Small and Medium Workplaces, three years in a row, Boston Globe's Top Workplaces, two years in a row. So I don't know if there's any awards missing off that, but that pretty much covers the gamut. (laughs) There are, I'm not going to remember or point them out. so. So there's obviously a lot of intention that you've taken as CEO to create that experience. We talked a little bit about vivid vision and culture, but if you were distilling it, and maybe this goes back to the book, how did you create that experience? How long did it take? I mean, just if you're giving us Cliff's Notes version of, I want to do the same thing as an independent financial advisor, assembling a team that, that loves to be here and performs at a high level, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, so this will go in a circular direction, but I think first, as the individual, you need to internalize the principles and elevate and figure out what you want, 
how you want to get there and otherwise. Because that then aligns to your business of making sure that your business goals and your business values serve that. So there's a formula I found in every high-performing culture. And it is sort of three things and two modifiers. So all of them have a clear vision of where they want to go and a picture because that's what gets people interested, that prospective employees otherwise. I, it's funny. When we were going for a, an equity line uh, increase with our bank, I actually brought our vivid vision along and someone told me, and it, and it actually went a really long way you know, with the bank around, this is cool. And these guys have done what they've said they were going to do. So you need a vision, you need real values. Like I'm going to believe like core values are not integrity and we all, whatever, like they're differentiated point of view of like the type of people that you want at your business, not these sort of permission to play variables. Bob, can you just give an example yeah. or two? You don't need an acronym. Like ours are own it, excel and improve and relate, embrace relationships. Like those define the type of person and the characteristic of someone that does well here. Integrity shouldn't be a core value at your firm because you wouldn't hire anyone that theory, you wouldn't hire anyone that didn't have integrity, right? So it actually should be a differentiated point of view. Like I was talking to someone last night, like we do what we say, right? A lot of people, that's not how they operate, right? Or we believe in X. Like I think, and for me, a core value, I should be able to sit down, Brad, and, and on your check-in and be like, look, here are some cases this quarter when you didn't own it. And, and here are some examples, right? Here's where you could have leaned into the relationships we had really more and didn't do that or did that well. And here's where, you know, issues of, or upside of, hey, where's where you did things really well or came up with an improvement or a better way to do it. I'm not going to sit down and be like, Brad, like, let's talk about your integrity this quarter. Like your integrity was kind of, this is why to me, they're not real core values. When you can get operationalized core values and Gary Ridge, who's a, a friend of mine, one of the top CEOs in the world at WD40, I love how he say, he goes, if anyone makes a decision in our company under the umbrella of one of more of our core values, they are absolutely safe, right? So that it's sort of like the combination of good core values should, should supplant lots of rules. Like if people don't know the right thing to do, are they owning it? Are they embracing relationship? And are they excelling and improving? Like if they make that decision, they're good. So that's the second one. The third one is, is goals and targets. Can I ask on that yeah. real quick? As the leader, as the guy that's setting the rhythm for the company, do your employees, does a receptionist, for example, have the ability to call you out and say, hey, Bob, I don't think you owned it right there. Yeah, absolutely. Like we encourage all kinds of feedback and particularly if people think their values and people have have said that, you know, on my team or to me. And like the first thing you should say when someone says that, you know, apropos to the Friday Ford this morning is, is thank you. Like, thanks for pointing that out. Because as soon if you react viscerally, it is the last feedback or challenge you will ever get. And now you're the emperor with no clothes, you know, but everyone's talking about it. They're just not telling you. That's the only difference. So yeah, we encourage people to speak out and shout out anything that they think is incongruous with our core values. Which, by the way, today's Friday Forward, as we record this, was around whistleblower and how that's a healthy thing inside yeah. of a company and to encourage it. So how have you gone about encouraging and, and creating a safe place where people know, hey, it's okay if I'm no different than anybody else on this yeah. team. If I'm not living by these values, you need to let me know. We're very open with feedback. So we have regular feedback. We use a cool thing called Tiny Pulse, which lets people submit anonymous feedback every week. We read those Ti- to the... Tiny Pulse. Tiny Pulse. Software. Yeah, it's like a kind of engagement software Okay, that it's a great tool for a small business. It asks your employees one question each week and once a month, ask them how, how happy they are at work from a one to 10. And it lets people send nice notes to each other and you just get really good longitudinal data around engagement and you get that feedback. So 
we ask people, are you happy, present, and engaged? We, we ask a lot of times, what are things that we should start doing, stop doing, continue doing? That's a really good exercise, start to continue, because people might express the same thing in three different ways. Like I always say, like, let's say the problem is we're taking on these clients who are a-holes, right? Some people might say, we should stop working with clients that are a-holes, right? That most people actually probably might not be that direct. They say, we should start vetting our clients you know, more carefully before we take them on for their personality, or we should continue kind of looking at our client relationships and determine whether that... So, right, like it gives them three different ways to make the same point. And some people are more comfortable with the, with the indirect. So we do that a lot. We do live town halls where I intentionally do not look at the questions, prepare for them. People can put them on the screen, you know, live and I have to deal with it right away. Because I, I think if you want an authentic answer, you don't want a rehearsed answer. And so like, you know, people this year was like, are you selling the company? You know, why does our maternity policy suck? And so to me, it was like, great, like, let's talk about it. So I, I think yeah. you're, your willingness to even let people ask the questions. One of the things I did at our town hall was I had $10 Starbucks cards years ago. And I, I said, if you ask a level nine question or 10 question, you can have a Starbucks card. Like, because if you ask the difficult question, like, are you going to sell the business and kind of leave us all high and dry? I know everyone's thinking about it. So it gets the, the things going. So I, this is just a mindset where you have to be comfortable with the questions and the feedback. Yeah. Did you have to grow into that or did that come naturally to you? No, I had to grow into that. It's not a natural thing for most of us. But I think if you ever study the Johari window or sort of the blind window, you come to this awareness as you're working on personal development that like those conversations are happening. So do I just want to be part of them or, or not, you know, part of them? It's always really interesting to me. So I wrote some uh, article on LinkedIn. It was one of the top articles on LinkedIn about how to avoid joining a toxic culture. Like here are the signs to look for. And one of them was, the trends you should look to on, on Glassdoor, not whether, you know, pro or con, but like things that if you keep seeing these same themes over and over again, then be careful. And so someone comment on that, you know, Glassdoor is a travesty. And it's like the dumbest thing. And they just let angry people, whatever. And I was like, so I see the guy's name and I'm like, <laughs> let's go, let's go look up this company on Glassdoor. And like literally all the things that I read in the article, like it's just, you know, he had a one out of five rating. And I was like, this guy just wants everyone to work for him. Make like, It was just really, he was just so blind to what people were actually even saying about him to the fact that they were all saying the same thing. And, and into him, it was this like gross injustice or of, of angry people. But like, to me, like the one angry person, like whatever, but when 15 people are saying the same narrative, like, yeah. I, there's something in his brain that just didn't want to actually take that feedback. Yeah. So Darren Hardy spoke for us. This was a year or two back. And the, the one little analogy that always stuck with me from true leadership, you remember, I feel like every kid our age had this poster where it was the mansion with like the seven car garage with like the <laughs> Lamborghinis. You remember that like kind of fairly famous or like an L McPherson Coors Light. Poster. Yeah. It's one yeah. of those two. I, yeah. <laughs> it was Cindy Crawford for me, yeah. but, but he, he basically puts this up on the screen and he starts to tell this story about if, you know, if you show up, if you put in the work. You know, if you do what we tell you to do, and if you follow these values, all of this, I'll have these cars. I'll have these cars. Yes. And it sounds like, it sounds like basically the feedback on Glassdoor for that guy is just a lack of awareness of like his employees just feel like they're building it for someone else versus themselves. Yeah. And look, we, we have a liquid job market these days. And this is the problem. That playbook would have worked 10 years ago in the gig economy and all this stuff, the sort of 
come make me rich and here's why it's good for me because you don't have mobility, it just doesn't work. I mean, there's some enlightened leaders who don't believe in that. But even if you're not enlightened, like, let me tell you, it's not going to work. You're not going to get any employees in, the, you know, millennials or Gen Z that are just want to come and command and control and help, you know, make you rich. They, they, they want to do something. They want a purpose or else they can be. So I recently gave my culture speech at an industry trade conference and I was talking about a bunch of stuff. And this guy comes up to me after he's like, can I ask you a question? And he's, he's kind of like, so what do you do if like you believe in all this stuff and you want to do this stuff? But, and he's like kind of in tears, you know, like saying this to me and it's, you know, he's the COO, his dad's running the, the firm. His dad believes no one works as hard as he does. No one does this, you know, cause it's all about his dad. You know, he has all the upside and they can't keep people and the turnover is crazy. And he's like, I, and I just don't think that playbook is going to make it another five years or another generation in terms of running a business that way. But some people, again, have been enlightened around changing their philosophy about what leadership and business means. Others, I say, look, if you're not enlightened, like it, at least be pragmatic that <laughs> that playbook's not going to work for much longer. Yeah. yeah. It's no longer the company that you work for 40 years and you've got the pension when you retire. Right. Doesn't and work. that was just because the switching costs was right. There was the pension plus finding a job was not that, you know, you're talking about newspapers. You, there's no LinkedIn. There's no indeed. Like there, I mean, it, the, the whole job market is just, it's just far more liquid. And plus you have stuff like Glassdoor and stuff where, you know, if everyone goes on, you know, now there's a massive warning trail of the companies that yeah. you should stay away from. And if you're a CEO of a company and you don't have Glassdoor on your sort of a scorecard, you're not realizing why you may be having a huge problem, you know, recruiting if you haven't paid attention to it. There's a philosophy I took from Gary Vaynerchuk, and he said, in today's day and age with technology and all of the tools, like literally something happens publicly, there's 15 iPhones recording it. Yeah. And it, like, I, I think back just to even like Uber CEO just a few years ago, it's like, whoever you are at your core, you can't hide it anymore. Eventually yeah. it will come out. And that's to the point on Glassdoor, like transparency is out there. It's democratization of data and information. Yeah. And so you can't be one person in the public eye and another person privately. It's like, eventually it's going to come out. It's just a matter of how long is it going to take? You, and you'd I, be better, like, right? You'd be better off saying, Hey, this is a family business. It's me, mine and myself and, and all stuff. But if you want a nice stable job and whatever, like you'd be actually better off saying that because there are some people who'd say, you know what? Right in my life right now, like that's what I want and that's what I care about. Like it just this incongruousness between like what we're saying, what we're thinking, and what we're doing is 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 I think where a lot of the problems are. Yeah. Okay. So I derailed you a little bit. So back to the three things. So vision, 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 real values, values. and then you need goals and targets. So this goes to no one likes going to a game without a scoreboard. And so you know, knowing what. So to me, the goals and targets are actually how the vision gets materialized. So and saying, look. Here are our metrics. Everyone's got them. Here are the three-year goals. Here are the year goals. Here are the quarterly goals. We use a piece of software. All this stuff is public to our team. You can see that the goal you're working on is part of the one-year goal, which is part of the three-year goal, which gets us to that vision. It's it's minor red, green, yellow in the system like everyone else's are. And the scoreboard's really public from a performance standpoint. So we're, we're clear about how we're going to get there. And from an accountability standpoint, I don't have to have a lot of difficult conversations when you're red for four quarters and everyone sees it, you know, I, you know, that can't stay that way. So that's the like, defined thing of where we're going. Here's how we're going to get there, but we're going to do it in the service of our core values. And that, you know, that is the litmus test for what we decide to do and not to do. And then the two modifiers on it, it's either three or five are clarity and consistency. 
What people really want are clear values, clear vision, clear goals and targets that don't move, particularly with founders. Any founder who's adopted the traction or gazelles, like people love it because it, it, it keeps them from changing what's going on every day. So it's clarity and consistency. And then people want consistent goals, consistent vision. You know, those are the two modifiers that, that I think uh, the systems like gazelles and traction really can bring if you set them up. Like, again, we're going to be clear. We're going to be consistent. Here's our vision. Here's our values. And here's how we measure success here. And that turns a lot of your people problem into much simpler discussions of, is Brad the right fit from a value standpoint? If he's not, then that's a really easy decision. But the other biggest problem people have is that the Brad thinks he's doing a great job and the other person doesn't because they, they're not clear about, you know, Brad was hired to do sales and marketing. And so the sales guy's unhappy, but the marketing guy's unhappy or, or vice versa. So these goals and targets just make it super clear for everyone, like what is success, what's on track, what's off track. And, you know, I might, maybe Brad has all the core values, but if Brad is in sales and he can never make the quota, which is how we get to the vision, then that's a discussion that we have to have. But Brad shouldn't say, I didn't know what my, I wasn't clear about what the goal was, or he shouldn't think that he was doing great when the scoreboard clearly says that he's below the target that we needed in that area. So Bob, if you were going to distill down to point number three, your goals and your targets, and kind of what I would say is your company's operating system, whether it's software, you mentioned traction a couple of times. Do you yeah. guys use their entrepreneurial operating system or what are yeah, your... Yeah, we, we use part of Eos, part of Gazelles. Our coaches do both. We use this piece of software called Metronome, which is what puts all the goals and targets and everything like in, in a single system where everyone can see it. So what's really cool is, you know, we, we use the concept of rocks, right? So like I might take a rock that we need to launch this new initiative this quarter. Well, then the people on my team get rocks that are part of that initiative, but the system aligns all that. So they see that that little thing that they're doing down here actually, you know, cascades up to the organizational objective and they understand, you know, where the alignment is and where they fit into everything. So would it be safe to say that metronome is what creates the scoreboard based on kind of the traction being the underlying Correct. framework. Correct. Based on the alignment, you know, of the three-year vision is literally broken down into 12 quarters of goals that will get us to that vision to then the annual plan and then to what everyone has to do. So that's, that's the reverse. Because it's great to have a vision, but then you got to get to, all right, well, how are we going to win five best places to work awards? And how are we going to write a book? And how are we going to operate in these four? Like, it's not, it won't just happen. <laughs> so right. I'm always in the middle of this of the people who are very visiony, but you know, no reality or lots of tactics without any direction of where they're going. You need both. I'd love to hear your thoughts on something that I feel like a lot of advisors that are transitioning into, Hey, back in the day, it's just me. I'm like, I can be accountable for me. That's pretty yeah. easy. You know, if I need to lose weight, I need to hit the gym. Where it starts to be tough is, well, now I've got to hold other people accountable. So let's go back to your example where they were red for four straight quarters. I'm guessing you probably would have addressed it before then, but what sort of conversations do you and your team leads have when it's holding someone accountable to not hitting the thing it's supposed to? So, So what's really interesting is this transition from doing to manager. Most really accountable people actually struggle to hold other people accountable. It's kind of an irony where like they're not holding people to the standards that they set for themselves. When you see that off, I think, you know, you have to have a discussion. This is a great one of the best things to come out of traction the GWC. Like do they get it, want it, and have the capacity to do it? So it's is there something wrong about this goal? Do they not have the right training? Is there something we need to help them with? Or, you know, is this not even what they really want 
to do. Sometimes when you have that discussion, they're like, I don't want to do this. And so you might say, well, we don't have anything else to do, or we actually have this other great job and you could be a fit for that. This isn't the right thing. So, you know, it starts a discussion. And then we always talk about like getting to the root, not the symptom. The symptom is you have a headache. You can give three people a Tylenol. The only problem is one's dehydrated, you know, one is allergic to gluten and the other has brain cancer, right? So they all have a headache, but they have fundamentally different root causes. So we're very big on like when there's a symptomatic problem not hitting the goals, like what is the problem in here? Is it this person doesn't have the ability? They don't understand. They're they're actually interviewing for another job and are checked out, right? They're all different types of root things that would lead you to different solutions. Hmm. So we really train people to get into the why and have those discussions of, and the first one would be like, Brad, do you want to do this? And if the answer is like, no, I really don't want to do this, right? <laughs> like, and and okay. do, you, do you feel like your employees are in a safe enough spot where they can actually honestly say, no, I honestly saw this and I, I would hate doing that on a daily basis? So we've created this open transition program. 100% believe we have created the psychological safety in our environment to have that discussions. After 20 years of training of not ever having those discussions in an open way, some people really struggle to have them or they will say to us, look, I know you have this and you have a transition. And if I tell you, I don't want to work here, I'm not going to get fired and we'll work on a plan. But like, I got to take care of myself and mine. So I lied to you, even though you, you know, asked me multiple times not to, you know, it frustrates me, but I don't, I don't like it, but I get it. <laughs> but you know, that's what we've said. If you ever come to us and have a discussion about not happy, not sure if you want to do whatever, you will never be walked to the door. We will figure out a transition plan, whether it's suboptimal for us around that person, like, whether you work with us for the next three months or otherwise, like maybe it would have been better financially for me to have ended that earlier. But the, it sends a signal to all the people behind that they can have that discussion. Because what some people tell me is like, look, people are, we let them go the same day they tell us because we feel like we don't get any value. We don't get I'm like, that's fine. You can do that. But there's no way anyone is going to tell you the truth around here. And by the time they give their two, and they're like, we're worried about stealing. And I'm like, this is devil you know, don't know. Okay, you're worried about stealing. Everyone sees what's going on. So the guy stole well before he gave his two weeks notice, knowing that you're going to walk him out that day. Like if, you, if that's what you're worried about, he's already, he's been doing this for six months. Like that, so, so don't think that he hasn't seen, I mean, a company that I worked with that had a great culture and they said, but look, when people give two weeks notice, we just ask them to leave that day and we kind of you know, walk them out, but we want people to be open. I was like, it's never going to happen. Like they're seeing that they don't even get their two weeks that you think that like they can't even be around their colleagues for two weeks. So you are going to continue to get blindsided by people. So just to make sure I understand the context, what I hear you saying is we don't fire people. We ask them to be transparent and open and honest with us. And if they do, and our company is no longer the place, we have a transition program where we actually help them find their next gig. Yes, that's what we do. And it's both ways. So they can come to us or we also come to them. We say, Brad, we just don't think it's going to work out. But like, look, we trust you and, and we are happy to have... To me, I, always, I equate this to sports because we always almost think this is so weird in a professional context. Isn't it weird? Like, you know the free... You know Kwani Leonard's like not going back to the Raptors, but they won a championship. Like, he was a good teammate. He worked together. Like, you know, he's not pouting around. Like, everyone got what they needed. We think it's the same thing. We'd say, Brad, like, so, you know, it's January 1st. Like, Let's talk about what this could look like, but, and maybe we'll go like mid-March. You know, we want, we'd love you to wrap up your stuff, train the person here. You can go interview. We just think that particularly in professional services, 
and, and for the people listening, right? To that example I just told before, what is the worst thing that happens in professional services, right? That advisor, that employee leaves with a relationship and like you often don't recover. So let's say they know that you're willing to do this and, they, and you say, all right, Amy, what we're going to do is we're going to start having Cindy join all of your calls for the end. So at least get Cindy some you know, FaceTime in there for every month and some name in there. So then when we tell the client that you're leaving in eight weeks, there's some other person in there and some other relationship. Mm-hmm. In a client service business, I feel like this kind of system is even most more important. I, I did a TED Talk on it. This is really hard. It takes a lot of years. You have to be totally in on it. You have to train your managers. But I think it is such a better way of acknowledging the reality today that people won't work there forever. And my, my opening line in my TED Talk is, well, if your partner came to you in your relationship and said they were moving in two weeks to a new city you know, with a new partner, like how would you react to that? Because that's basically how we leave businesses today. And in the world of like connections, like how it ends is really important. And, and so the last thing you remember is, oh... Sally's had all those doctor appointments. Like Sally was a great employee, but right, you might just remember this last thing where you know she was not around and engaged, and now you now you're finding the cobwebs of disengagement. We all know that person leaves, and that's just the beginning of uncovering all of the work that they have been doing poorly for mm-hmm. months or years. So you, it sound. I mean, the analogy that comes to mind for me is it's like a baton being passed as opposed to the baton being dropped, which is what happens in a lot of situations. You know, a salesperson leaves, they're out the door, left on a bad note. Next thing you know, they're calling all your clients. It's, oh no, actually, we're going to pass the baton. Sally's on the calls for eight weeks where now that connective issue's been kind of passed on to the next person in line. I mean, it You have to change the whole mindset. We're like, look, People are going to leave. There's not lifetime employment. Leaving here is not the end of our relationships. It's an ecosystem. You're part of our alumni. Like, just change this notion. Or also that, like, yeah, like, look, if there's a core violation or you do something unintegral, I mean, we would, in theory, fire people. It's been very few and far, you know, between where there's actually some risk they created. But this discussion of Brad, you know, this isn't working. Like, you're not happy. We're not happy. Like, let us help you find something that's a better fit and give the person a little bit of respect. It's also a lot easier to look for a new job with the cover of a current job and right. the blessing of you say, look, I'll give you my current boss as a reference. You know, a lot of companies are very, you know, surprised by that. Yeah. So yeah, they're, they want to do something different. We totally support huh. them. You oh, know, and that, yeah. So are you literally, I work for you, Bob. And I say, Hey man, I, it's, I need to, I'm out the door. Is your company helping them search for jobs or how far down the path do you go? Is it just we, will be a great reference for you? So remember, we're, we're, we're own it. So I will help them, but, but, but they need to do the work. So I would say like, look, go through my LinkedIn. If there's people that I know at the company you want to go to, you know, I'll make an introduction, send, send me like, like, say, I'm not just not just like not, no different for a friend or family member. Like I'm not going to be a recruiter. Right. But, you know, set me up and use me. I mean, our HR people have helped people with their resumes. You know, we've helped make introductions. We provided people with some of the training, you know, that they might need. One person wanted like professional photos for the industry she was going into. So we helped her with that. So it does come back to our values. Like you need to own it. Like I'm the CEO of the company. I'm not going to start looking at job boards. You know, this is the same speech I give to anyone when they reach out. Like, you know, like who's a good company and who's looking for a VP of finance. I'm like, don't ask me to do work that you're not willing to do. I'm not looking to be a, a free headhunter for you. But come to me and say, 
you know, I just saw that, you know, and, and as I said to someone last week, isn't that what you should be doing? Like, but if they come to me and say, Hey, I saw your friend, Brad is the CEO of this awesome place. I actually wanted to get into financial services. I see they're a great place. Could you intro me to Brad? I'll be like, awesome. Send me a paragraph. Let me get you to the top of the pile and out of the automated tracking system. So what does your company retention rate look like from an employee standpoint with this sort of kind of open door policy? Yeah. So, so what we look at, because we think there are mistakes made, there's natural evolution of, we look at unwanted turnover and, and, uh, you know, in the last 12 months, that's under 5%. Awesome. We actually think it works pretty well. If someone identifies that they're not performing well, they feel misalignment with the values and they sort of raise their hand and say, you know, I want to be doing something different. That is, and so the turnover might be closer to 10% or otherwise, but I think things change, right? People change, they move. Like, but we really look at this person was a rock star, and we wanted to keep them, and we, and we lost them. That's the quadrant that that matters most. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thanks for that. That's there's so many golden nuggets in there. Okay, so I see our time ticking down here. Yeah, it's fun. Still have flown. so many, so many places I want to go. So let, let's circle all the way back around to the beginning here, the Friday forward. Yeah. So you've got the aspect where you're a CEO, you're running a business. Then you've got something that many financial advisors right now are trying to figure out how to do. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of parallels in the fact that you're the CEO, you're the head guy, but you're also speaking from your, you're a voice for your business as yeah. well and the image for your business. Yeah. So give me your thoughts on how to be authentic. And if I was a financial advisor out yeah. there, let's say I want to do a Friday market commentary. With, yeah. hey, here's a couple articles going on. Here's my authentic view and how we see it with the end goal of I want to build a list to where, hey, some of these people could be great clients and we just want it to be real authentic because I, yeah. I think what happens in our industry a lot is here's this pre-produced newsletter. Let me buy it and send it and then nobody reads it. So it's the exact opposite of what they right. want. So how have you gone about being really authentic? How do you find the time to put real thought into producing this weekly? Because that's an undertaking. Just yeah. any, any views on that would be awesome. I think it's got to be something you're generally passionate about. And, and I have had multiple things over the year where people even said in our business, why don't you put a link to the company in this? Why don't you, you know, why are you doing this? People want to sponsor it. Like, and I've kept it pure and I've kept it on creating value for the reader, right? So I think you have a lot of smart business owners. They're probably like, hey, like, marketing people are like, Hey, start a marketing thing. And you know, they really want it to be conversion based or call us like the best thing that you can do. Like I, I, I there was an ad years ago where they were trying to all the Facebook companies, they were trying to just doing this, right? Like they wanted you to like mayonnaise, you know, like Hellman's like, and people don't want to like mayonnaise, you know? So from a social standpoint, I think the best thing that you can do and probably focus on LinkedIn or Twitter is write content that is so good and valuable to the user that people want to share it. And the way that they share it is across Twitter and LinkedIn or otherwise. And then they want to follow you to see that content or they want to sign up for, for more. So I would, you know, I would look at that content, like pretend like you can never sell anyone with whatever you're writing or the content. It had to just provide value to them. It's standalone value was so good that someone would forward it to someone else and say, you got to read this and, and you want to get up for it. And don't mix that with your marketing message. Just just build a relationship. And what's interesting, I always say, like when I go to industry conferences in the affiliate world, we publish a ton of affiliate content, like checklists, books, guides, all this stuff. No one ever comes up to me and says, that five checklist thing that you did was awesome. They say, oh, I love the Friday forward on whatever. Now, 
it's not about what we do, but you know, I have a touch point to that person every week. They see me, they see what our company is doing. So it keeps them, you know, they're in our orbit. Like they're, we're, we're on their mindset and, and, you know, the day their financial advisor upsets them or does something or switch practices, they might be like, Oh, well, I'm going to give her a call. The woman who has been sending out this newsletter. So if you want to do a newsletter, you want to do content, take what you're passionate about, take your core expertise. When you finished writing it, say, was, was the number one goal here to add value to the user and that someone could think it was so good that they would forward it to someone else because it's not a pitch. It's actually value added. And the best way to come from content is, particularly in your sales process, you're an advisor, if you've had the same discussion like a hundred times with someone or told the same thing, like that's a great piece of content. You know Why it is that fee-based or this, or why you should do this or why you shouldn't do that or how you can think about you know, the type of relation, like things that actually demonstrate your differentiated point of view, I think are really, you know, good to write about. And we have those in the, you know, in our business world too, like content around in marketing, like six questions. People love the self-deprecating stuff, like the six difficult questions you should ask your financial advisor, right? Because in theory, those they could ask you those questions, right? That's a piece of content that's not trying to pitch anything. It has that sort of like, I'm willing to like, poke fun at myself or whatever, but it also lets you highlight a differentiated point of view. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Are we okay for five more minutes and get yeah. a little philosophical here, Bob? No problem. All right. Speed so, round. Speed round. Yeah. Okay. So here's the first one I want to go with. So if we look out 25 years and if there was something like looking back, so we're 2020, so what would we be? 2045, we're, we're, our old grayer selves. Yeah. And we're looking back and we're like, man, do you remember back in 2020 people used to do this? That was absolutely absurd. What would you like to look back and be considered absurd about 2020? I think based on the thing I've heard from from people is like how reachable, you know, everyone was and connected. And and mm-hmm. I think because it's exhausting people. So I hope people are looking back and they've found more more personal space and more kind of time for them to have some quiet. You know, I think Ryan Holiday just wrote the stillness book and I think everyone is, is missing this. You know, we're just, I just had Cal Newport on and he was talking about his next book is about kind of, he thinks we're going to look back in five or 10 years and be like the way that we use email was absolutely absurd. So uh, yeah, I hope we've found a way to, to disconnect a little more and, and to use technology to solve some of the world's biggest problems and, and not to, just keep exacerbating new social media uh, tools. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing about that is you and I grew up in a generation. We didn't have that when we were little. Now I see my kids at at nine, eight and four, they're surrounded by it. And I I really feel there's this, there's going to be this superpower for that age specifically on the ones that can look you in the eye, connect with you, have a real conversation. Five minutes later, be, you know, looking at the phone, like, just because it's this safety thing that people get nervous. So they just default to that. Yeah. All my, all my kids went to overnight camp. That's a big new England thing. And, and, and they have no phones while they're there for seven weeks and they're fundamentally happier, right? They don't miss it. They don't, they're running around the dirt playing with people. Like it's a forced thing. And it just proves like it's not better. We're just sort of, yeah, it's just endemic in, in everything that we do. Hmm. Are there principles that you practice or you practice with your family to try to move more in that? connectedness and stillness direction? I think we try to bring awareness, you know, to it, even little things around like put it down when you're eating, like 
trying to not multitask when when we're doing everything. You know, it's hard. I'm trying to bring awareness to because look, there you don't want to hear any of this stuff when you're a kid. But but just how old are your kids? Out of curiosity, uh, 16, 14, 11. So okay. we're right They're in the sweet spot. right in the heart of it. Then yeah. yeah. So so we did we try to talk about this stuff philosophically and what we see are the risks of it and and point out the behaviors that you know, are problematic and they can see it too. Even like, Hey, you came and you grabbed this, like you didn't have this at camp for four weeks. And you're happy, like, how do you not get yourself back into this or just shut it down? And it's hard. So we talk about it a lot. Like it's not, it's not where I would like it to be. Uh, it's still, it's still a work in progress. Yeah. It's not where I want it to be for me either. Uh, yeah. As I'm sure, you know, same for you, I'm sure too. Yeah. It's one of the hardest things I think in today's day and age, especially when your your business is on your phone. I mean, it's yeah. really hard to turn that off. Okay. So I want to go to, you run a podcast also called Elevate. Yeah. Um, I was just looking through it. I haven't actually had to listen to a full episode. We've got a lot of the same guests that are amazing people. What are some some of the core biggest learnings you've taken from running a podcast, any nuggets of wisdom where you're like, wow, that just blew my mind and changed how I view the world now. Just anything that comes to mind on that front. From the running the podcast itself? Either running it or conversations you've had with guests on there. Just anything that that looking back, because you've done this podcast the last couple of years, you fundamentally learned or view the world differently because of it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, there's so many different ones. Like I really like the learning aspect of it. For me, again, it's like, know the why of what you're doing it. Like for me, it's, I want the best guests and the best conversations to create value and whatever comes out of that otherwise are opportunities. I think, you know, happens. It's interesting. I've regretted like some of the, you know, guests who are sort of pushed on me, who I just, you know, they were there for the wrong reasons versus yeah. when I knew that there was someone who had something interesting to talk about when, I wanted to to talk about that it with them, but again, there's no there's no commercial aspect. Kind of, there's nothing being sold. It's similar focus to Friday Ford of create value for others, and and I learn a ton, you know, through the conversation. Yeah. So I'm, I'm asking the questions from you know the people who are best at these things, what they can do. So I, I listen to them again because I, I'm sure you can understand this. When you're doing the podcast, you're looking at your questions, you're looking at the clock. Like not that you're not listening, but I I like listening to it again to just really listen to that person, sort of without any job that I have to do. And I, I learn a ton from it usually that second time. I was joking with, gosh, who did I just have on? It was a few episodes ago, but they host a podcast as well. Oh, it was Michael Kitsis who has a, a big platform yeah. space. And I asked him which side of the mic. And he's like, it's easy to be asked things I know about, you know, be interviewed. He's like, it's really hard to interview. And our whole conversation was, you know, like I've got a newfound respect for Oprah because she, yeah. that, that girl's a master of her craft. And because it really is hard to, it's it's exhausting a little bit to be able to navigate and keep the questions relevant. But it's a I'm, cog- it's a cognitive load. Like I always tell people, like, what do you listen to? I was like, I listen to my. Po- I'm not telling you I'm narcissistic. I listen to my podcast, but I, I I listen to it because I can't hear. I can't be fully in tune. Again, even now you're looking down, me like, oh, the clock, and I'm not going to get to this question. So right. you know, I I really do. I wanted to hear what this person had to say, so I really do like to sit down and listen to it. I don't need to hear myself. I hate hearing myself. But yeah, there's a point to the podcast, right? And, and and there's a goal and sort of a narrative and the type of person I want. And I think when I deviate from that plan, it's not as it's not as good. Like mm-hmm. and, and you could see for the wrong reason, oh hey, hook me up and I'll come on yours. And then you're like, oh, I just feel like I cheapen my product, you know, a little bit. So well, it goes back to so a lot of our business is based on phone sales, email sales. 
And the one time you burn someone, you send them the worthless email or you leave them a voicemail that was completely all, you know, focused on you and what you needed from them. You've now burned that relationship. And I feel it's the same way, whether you're emailing, whether you're doing a podcast episode where you just always want it to be like, I would want to listen to this, you know, and if it's not, then it needs to be. I I just wrote an article about double opt-in emails, right? And one of the things I said is like the best networkers, you know, do that, but it keeps you honest, right? If Mm -hmm. I say, Brad, do you mind if I introduce you? Like, because a lot of times people are introducing just as a favor to introduce and setting up someone with someone else who really wants to sell them something. It's not really a mutually, but when you have to ask both parties, it keeps yourself honest. Like for, you know, why am I, why am I doing this? Yeah, completely. So, all right. So if there was one thing, so if you distilled it down, I've done this many episodes over the last few years, and here's the one thing that stuck with me. What comes to mind first? One thing that stuck with from me. From a guest, uh, from a guest, something that a guest shared. Oh, on my podcast? Mm-hmm. Philip McKernan, actually, I had on, who you know through Mastermind Talks. And yeah, he just really talked about something he said to me that that, that has helped me and a lot of people was like honoring like your truth and something that may have happened to you, you know, doesn't have to, a lot of us who are self-starters don't want to like put ourselves as a victim in that story. So we sort of like change the narrative and he's like, look, it's your truth. It's your story. It's part of who you are. It doesn't mean that you're blaming anyone or someone else. Like that was actually really helpful for me. And I, and I know it's been helpful for some other people to, again, try to connect some of that, you know, why do I do what I do and where did it come from, you know, without feeling like they're blaming their parents or otherwise, like, but just, it's our truth. You know, if you, if you got bullied as a kid in class, like that, that's just your truth. And if that caused you to go be, you know, lift weights and wanted it, like it, it is your reality. You don't have to like blame anyone for that. So he really talked about that and sort of making time to honor, you know, your craft and the things that are important to you. And I've listened to that a couple of times because I think we always need that reminder. Yeah. I don't want to drag this into like a two hour episode. <laughs> the first thing that I was just talking about this the other day, and it came from Mastermind Talks. I think you were at this one, Cat Hoke. I think yeah. you were on yeah. your show. And I was just telling this story. I think you're at the one. Were you the one, Chris? Yeah, the was she guy, bald headed with face tats. Yeah. I remember, and this is, I'm not, I'm ashamed of it a little bit, but I walked in that room, 150 super successful people. And like, I saw, who is that? Yeah. But I was like, wow, that's kind of a scary dude. That was the first thing I thought. Well, come to find out, like, I'm thankful I leaned into it. I'm like, I'm going to seek him out. I'm going to have a conversation. I want to hear his truth and his story. And come to find out his dad had him selling drugs at like eight years old. Yeah. And I mean, because he honored his truth and was real and transparent about it, I learned from it. And I realized like, who am I to judge? I mean, roles reversed. I'm the guy in the room that has, you know, tattoos all over my body. And I think there's a really big lesson there. Don't hide from it. Be transparent. And you can actually use it to connect with people if you're real about it. So, yeah. Yeah. We, All right. We, I'll get, we, I'll get. We, I went to Kat's you know, prison day, and that was one of the most impactful days of my life. I mean, I totally changed my perspective on, on how I think about people and the, the you know, story after story like that of the not a level playing field and falling into a vicious cycle. You know, and not having daddy to bail you out or mommy to bail you out or keep you out of trouble. And it just, it turns into a pretty bad spiral pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, what, what's the name of her company? Uh, we can throw it in the show notes. Uh, I think Hustle, Hustle 2.0. Yeah. yeah. So for those that aren't familiar, it's literally you go spend a day in prison and, uh, in, in, in the maximum security, like life sentences prison. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. We did a little exercise at Mastermind Talks that was incredibly powerful where you kind of own your truths and uh, yeah, there's there's a lot that can come out of that. So, all right. So, Bob, last question. And uh, this is the way I like to, to end every conversation. If you could close with one piece of advice that's led to your success to this point that maybe applies to financial advisors out there, yeah. what would it be? I think it'd be understand yourself and then be yourself. It's really hard to be someone else or the expectations that other people have upon you. I think things really come together if you just take that simple approach. That's uh doesn't short, mean everyone's going to like it. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, again, not trying to make everyone happy. I, and I think that's a key distinction. Well, Bob, this was our first like real deep conversation other than yeah. just knowing a bunch of, of uh, we'll have to do it again. people. So I, I really appreciate it. This was, I feel like, we could do another hour or two. So you're welcome back anytime. Thank, Thank you, you for sharing your time with myself and the audience. There's going to be a ton of learnings from this. Can't wait to get it out to them. Thanks very much. Till next time. Thanks for listening into this week's show. On to this week's featured review. It comes to us from user Dan B, Life and Money. Uh, timely and engaging, five stars. Finding Brad's podcast this spring has been a game changer. In fact, in year two of my FA journey, I have developed my core focus and style. Now this podcast is giving me tools to make it happen. The timeliness and insight in the Pat Quinn episode will help me right now. Next step is listening with the notebook in hand and revising my webinar presentation. Dan. Dan, what's up? Thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts out on iTunes. If you happen to be listening to this, hit me up out on Twitter and I'll drop you a book in the mail to say thanks if I haven't already. You know, Dan, it's interesting. I was just listening to a TED talk with a guy named Ty Lopez. He's the guy behind the kind of the infamous book library Lamborghini YouTube ad that I think all of us have seen. I think he doesn't get enough credit for some of his thinking sometimes. And one of the things he talked about was uh, his 33% rule. And he talks about how finding mentors is really a huge thing when you look at all of the successful people out there. Everybody's had somebody, you know, kind of giving them a hand and pulling them up. The old quote, I've stood on the shoulders of giants. And I think one of the things that I really love about the podcast is number one, I've sought out mentors. I mean, many of the people that guest on the podcast, it's a form of virtual mentorship. I really consider myself really lucky to be able to have access and pick the brains of some really smart, intelligent, people that many times there's certain aspects I can learn from and aspire to be like. And I've also sought out mentors in my life. Michael Hyatt was an early one. I've had him on a couple of times. I talk about him quite a bit, but he challenged my thinking. I learned from things that he'd made mistakes on. And so back to the 33% rule, I think it's a really cool one to live your life by. 33% of your time should be seeking out those that are maybe 10 times in front of you whether it's money, whether it's relationships, whether it's as a parent, but just there are superstars in that aspect of life that you're seeking to be like. And then 33% of your time should be hanging around peers that challenge you, accountability partners. And then 33% of your time should be giving back to others. As one of my mentors said, you know, somebody sent the elevator down for me. Once you take it up, make sure you don't forget to send the elevator back down for others. And so that's one of the things I love about the podcast is it's a way for me to also give back. You know, I started in this industry when I was 27 and man, I was just a sponge. I was learning as much as I could from whoever I could gather that information from. 
And so if you two years in can be sitting here listening to this podcast and I can be sending the elevator down to you to pull you up, that just, that really fires me up. And that's one of the things I really love about this podcast. So if you're out there and you're listening in and you're new to the industry, just be a lifelong learner, be a student. And I can promise you that the results from investing in yourself will be exponential. So that's it, Dan. Thanks for the kind words. Thanks for listening in. Once again, if you happen to hear this, hit me up on Twitter. Love to drop you a book of your choice out in the mail as well. So other than that, lastly, I don't just run a podcast. We do coach financial advisors between myself and my team. That's the day job. So if you have interest in seeing how we might be able to help you, go out to bradleyjohnson.com forward slash apply. It's about a five-minute process. We've tried to make it really painless. It honestly just helps us understand you, your practice, where we might be able to help. And drop a note out there and love to connect in person for a virtual Zoom call and see how we might be able to help. So that's it. Thanks for listening in. And I look forward to the next conversation, the next podcast with you all. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint. For access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from our show's guests, visit bradleyjohnson.com. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners. It really does help. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. The information and opinions contained herein are provided by third parties and have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed by Advisors Excel. The guest speaker is not affiliated with or sponsored by Advisors Excel for financial professional use only, not to be used with the general public or in a sales situation.